We're turning this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, and the chapter 18. I, I quoted from the early part of this chapter yesterday. Uh, now we take up the reading for this evening, Matthew chapter 18. We will begin at verse 7, one of the woes pronounced by the Lord. These woes affect the world, you see. Verse 7 reads, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. These are words for every child of God to take to heart. Things are not always going to work out to our pleasing in this life. And when we think of conditions in the world, conditions among the nations, uh, conditions in society, how society is subject to change, even drastic change, you can see how the Lord certifies to his people that offenses will come. Difficulties too, where we need special grace from God. And if the Lord can stand alongside of us to overcome in his name, must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. We know that the language here is metaphorical. The Lord's using this illustration merely, whatever the hindrance is, we should seek to uh, overcome it. And if we have responsibility about it, to get rid of it. And there, in verse 9, we have the eye spoken of. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, the man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray? Doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep, of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, has gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee 
and some heathen mans and the publicans. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. What a cheering promise that is. May the Lord bless his word as it's read and preached this hour. Thank you so much for reading the Word of God for us this evening here from Matthew's Gospel and the 18th chapter. You'll know that we've been thinking very loosely about what it means to come before the throne of grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Lord invites us to come boldly onto the throne of grace. We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And another vital factor in approaching the throne of grace, especially whenever we think of coming together publicly in a meeting like this, is that of unity. The unity of heart and the unity of purpose of the people of God. Whenever the Savior taught his people to pray in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and what we often call the, the Lord's Prayer, really the model prayer might be a better title for it, but it's recorded, after this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I wonder, did you notice the personal pronouns that the Lord taught us to use in teaching us to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, forgive us our sins. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not unto temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our, our, us, 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 we, we. So it goes on these personal pronouns. There's not one single first-person pronoun used in the Lord's Prayer. We don't read about me. We don't read about my. We don't read about I. It doesn't come into it at all. Because as the Lord taught his people to pray, he teaches them to pray collectively. The Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is really a family prayer. And yet so often, if we're honest, our prayer lives are taken up with ourselves, or maybe even our own church, or our own denomination. But whenever the Lord taught us to pray, He taught us to pray with the, the family, the entire family of God in view, and to seek first the kingdom of God and, and His righteousness. And as I was thinking about this, I'd never really noticed that or considered that before. I, I became really convicted about how selfish my praying is. So often, whenever I come into the the closet to pray, it's about me, myself, and I. Maybe, yes, praying for others, but the Lord taught us to pray with a unity of spirit that we're not so much thinking all the time about ourselves, but we're thinking of the entire body of Christ collectively. The Lord's prayer is a family prayer, and it promotes unity. And here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, we have another lesson regarding prayer. In verse number 19, now granted from verse 15 through to verse number 20, the, the Savior is really speaking here about church authority and church discipline and, and so on and so forth. But verse number 19 gives us again another general principle whenever it comes to prayer. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth, that's touching anything that they shall ask. It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together 
in my name. There am I in the midst of them. If two of you on earth shall agree, there's unity. And it says then in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there's unity. And it speaks there about touching anything that they shall ask. Unity in prayer is a vital principle whenever it comes to approaching the throne of grace. And I just want to think tonight for a few moments, very simply, about unity in prayer. Unity in prayer. First of all, unity in principle. A special feature of the prayer life of Jesus Christ, as we see it very, very clearly in John's Gospel, chapter 17, a clear feature of the prayer life of Christ was the unity of his people. Just before the Savior went to the cross, we have this great high priestly prayer in John's Gospel, chapter 17. And in verse number 11 of that great prayer, the Savior says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Speaking there and praying for the unity of all of the blood-bought people of God. And again, you have a John 17, 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And so the Lord clearly prays, and that shows his heart's desire for the unity of his people, that they might be united together, even as Christ is united together in oneness and in unity with his Father. So the Lord prays that all of his people for whom he shed his blood for and died and brings to himself in salvation that they might be one. Unity, true unity, is advocated in Scripture. We cannot get away from this. The Bible advocates true unity. Christ desires oneness of all true believers, and the Scripture is clear about the unity of the body of Jesus Christ. I want to allow the Bible tonight to do the work, so I'm going to ask you to turn up a few references just to drive this point home. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 5. Romans 12 and verse number 5. I want you to notice it there. Paul speaking to the church at Rome. Romans 12, 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ. And every one members one of another. So again, you have it there, one body, united to one federal head. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the church is described as the body. There are many parts, there are many members, and they're all different. But they're all united and connected. God never, never intended any of his children to live in isolation from other believers. The physical unity and meeting together of God's people is vital, as the spiritual unity is a glorious reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 highlights the point again, as Paul writes to the different churches in the New Testament. He seems to bring up this theme again and again and again of their unity in Christ, their oneness in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse number 17, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. There you have it again, the unity of God's people. Again, Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one. In Christ Jesus. Yes, there are distinctions amongst God's people. Of course, we, we would never go as far as saying that there's no distinction or difference between male and female. We know there is, and the Bible is clear about that. But as far as our position in Christ is, we're all one. 
in Christ and it's all level ground at the cross. And the Lord looks at his people as being equal and yet united. And so we ought to take this to heart. And then again, the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure and stature and fullness of Christ. That fourth chapter of Ephesians speaks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. And of course, one body made up of believers from every kindred and tribe and nation, from all ages, gathered together in Christ, united together. True unity is advocated. And we must be very careful as to anything that can affect the true unity of the blood-bought people of God. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul warns about division in the body. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 25, there should be no schism in the body. And the word schism, it means to tear it means to split. It means to divide as you would tear a piece of cloth and divide it in two and maybe fold it over and tear it again and over and over again. You tear it, it becomes divided into lots of little pieces. And the, the word schism there is translated in Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 16 as rent, a garment being rent, torn, ripped asunder. And as Paul thinks about the body of Christ, he tells the people in Corinth, the church that had many problems, a church that was given over to party spirits and some followed Paul and some followed Apollos and some were given to this and some were following the other thing and there was division and carnality and pride and strife in that church. And Paul says to them, it ought not to be so. There should be no schisms. No divisions in the body of Jesus Christ. True unity is advocated in Scripture. And yet false unity is to be avoided according to the Scriptures. True unity is advocated. False unity is to be avoided. Whenever we think of true unity, we're thinking of those that are born again, blood-bought, and redeemed by Jesus Christ, true believers who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Christ is their only hope, and they believe in the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, the cross work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and they're waiting again for the second coming of Christ. And so wherever there's a people that fall under that umbrella, we might have differences, we mightn't swap pulpits with the, the church across the street, but there needs to be unity. Wherever there's a blood-bought believer, there needs to be an endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But false unity is to be avoided. True Christian unity can only be on the basis of truth. Unity can never be found at the expense of of truth. Unity cannot be built upon the wrong things or the wrong foundation. Genesis chapter 11 records the account of the Tower of Babel. And all of the world got together and it says, let's build us a tower. And it will reach right up into the heavens. And the Bible's very clear that in the last days, a system like that will rise up again, an antichrist system and we hear a lot of talk nowadays about globalism and a one-world government and a one-world economy and a one-world religion and a one-world leader and a one-world currency. And it's all advocating getting together and building a, a society without God. And it seems that so much is being channeled, channeled down that avenue. But God could not countenance or condone their misguided unity. And so God brought the whole thing down. You see, there needs to be unity, yes, upon the essentials. What we might call or refer to as the, the fundamentals of the faith. 
and the articles of faith of our own church and denomination hold these fundamentals to be dear. And they're clearly revealed in Scripture. And outside of those fundamentals, there can be no real unity, no true Christian unity, where any or all or some of these fundamentals of the faith are denied. What are they? Well, first of all, the absolute authority and divine verbal inspiration of the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Word of God. That's foundational. That we take this book that we have in our hands tonight as to be the divinely inspired Word of the living God. Holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. No prophecy of scriptures of private interpretation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And yet there are many tonight that take the place of uh, being a Christian, maybe even occupying a pulpit, and many of the main denominations historically have cast a, a question mark, sometimes even outrightly denied the verbal, plenary inspiration of Holy Scripture. So there needs to be unity in that. And then the Godhead as well. One true and living God. And in the Godhead, three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Equal in power and glory. And wherever the Godhead, the Trinity, the being of God is denied or called into question. There can be no true unity. The hymn writer said, What think ye of Christ? is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right on the rest unless you think rightly of him. And so the fundamentals of the eternal sonship, the virgin birth, the humanity, and also the deity of Jesus Christ, the personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit, the absolute necessity of the Spirit of God's work in regenerating the spirit of an individual to bring them to Christ. The work of the Spirit in sanctification. The infilling of the Spirit in the indwelt believer. The substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Fundamental to the Christian faith. Paul said, If Christ be not risen... Your faith is in vain and you're yet in your sins. The author of the book of Hebrews says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And whenever the cross work of Christ is denied or added to or taken away from or the resurrection of Christ, his physical, personal, glorious resurrection is called into question or explained away spuriously, there can be no true unity. The visible and personal return of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, these things are fundamental. And that's why tonight there's such a thing as a, a separated witness. Whenever these things are undermined or, or questioned or viewed as being optional or open to debate or open to discussion, there needs to be such a thing as Bible separation. Bible advocates it. If you want a few proof texts for that, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you know the verses, some of you well, verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What is the yoke? The yoke is something that is placed upon two oxen or two donkeys perhaps as they work together and walk together. And Paul's saying you cannot work together in the cause of Christ with unbelievers or people that deny the faith. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Or what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them. Come out from among that idolatry, that infidelity, where the faith is denied, where there's unbelievers 
professing to do the work of God and they deny certain aspects of the faith, Paul the Apostle says, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. It's good to be reminded of these truths because they're biblical. And in this day and age, they're, they're often called into question and they're viewed as being old-fashioned. But dear friends, these are just biblical principles. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that ye have learned and avoid them. And the doctrines that the apostle Paul preached and taught are the very doctrines that we have mentioned already. The inspiration of Scripture. Paul taught that. The deity of Christ. His cross work. His resurrection. The personality of the Holy Spirit. And so on and so forth. What about Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 11? Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And then as Paul was writing to Timothy, Timothy was a young pastor. He needed instruction. He needed guidance like every single one of us. And Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 3 concerning the name of God and his doctrine, he said in verse 3, 1 Timothy 6, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. And that's why tonight we are a separated witness. And there are other separated witnesses separated from the ecumenical movement and separated from the apostasy and separated from the charismatic delusion as well. There are many, many believers who have come out from those systems. And that's biblical. And we need to remind ourselves that the Bible advocates true unity. But the Bible calls us to avoid false unity. These aren't secondary issues that Paul is speaking about or John is speaking about. These are Bible, Bible issues. So there you have it, the unity, unity in principle. What about unity in practice? Unity is certainly something that is desirable. I don't think there's anything right in somebody's thinking whenever they just want division and disunity for the sake of it. A happy home is a home that's united. A prosperous business or, or a prosperous working environment is one that's united. A team, a sporting team that does well is a team that's united. An army that's victorious is an army that's united. And a church that marches forward and enjoys the blessing of God is a church that is united. Unity is a very practical thing. And the psalmist spoke in that lovely Psalm 133 about the great blessing of unity amongst the people of God. You know the psalm, I'm sure some of you could quote virtually the whole psalm. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, went down to the skirts of his garments. Aaron, the great priest, the high priest, a type of Christ, our great high priest. That ointment, a picture of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the anointed Son of God, our anointed head, and the Spirit of God touching every part of the body. What a beautiful picture it is. As the Jew of Hermon and the Jew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there God commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. God blesses the unity of his people and the success of, of any army going to battle falls or rises upon its unity. We read in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 25, the Savior said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation 
and every city or house divided against itself. It cannot stand. And we can't expect to prosper if there's disunity and division in the hearts and lives of God's people. Sometimes I wonder, is disunity killing the church in Ulster? So many evangelical churches. All churches have their problems. There's no perfect church because there's no perfect Christian. And wherever you find, even believers, you'll find self that needs to be dealt with. That's why the Lord said, take up the cross and seek first the kingdom. And the devil just wants to get in and cause division and disunity. The success or otherwise of Israel as a nation was often founded upon its unity or its disunity. We read in the little book of Judges chapter 20 and verse number 11. So all the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, knit together as one man. And that was the secret of victory. As they went out on that occasion to fight the Lord's battles, their hearts were knit together as one man. They were bound and tied together. And the child of God needs to be tied and tethered to the cross. And as we're tied and tethered to the Savior, the Lord can unite our hearts to fear his name. Nothing will so hinder prayer as much as disunity among believers. Disunity so easily grieves the Spirit of God. I want you to turn just for a, a few moments to the book of Galatians again and chapter 5. That great chapter that ends with Paul's teaching about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. He says in verse number 24, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And having, just before he speaks about the, the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 19, he speaks about the works of the flesh, which are manifest, which are these. And there are many of them that I'm sure we would shy away from. We wouldn't even like to think about adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft. Now, if those things come into the church, we would surely recognize those things. And we would abhor them and it's that so sinful. Can't believe that those things could come in so readily to a church. But look at the other things that the Apostle Paul lists amongst all of those things like idolatry and witchcraft and adultery. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, and then murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So, he deals with all of these outward sins as bookends, as he talks about the, the works of the flesh. But in the middle of it all, he speaks about variance. And that just means quarreling. He speaks about emulations. And that means jealousy. He speaks about strife. And that just means division. He speaks about sedition. And that means rebellion. And those are things that rise up within our hearts. And sometimes in evangelical circles, we can almost think that these things are spiritual. Because we take the moral high ground and point the finger at others. And yet these things, Paul describes them as being works of the flesh. And they ought not to be found amongst God's people. But sadly, sometimes they are. Division in the church robs us of God's blessing. Division in the home can rob us of answers to prayer as well. Whenever we read in uh, 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse number 7, Peter says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them that's your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered that your prayers be not hindered. Whenever there's division in the home, and sometimes there can be real division in the home, and maybe it's not of our own making. Maybe there's somebody in the family, they're not a believer. Maybe you've got a, a wife that's not saved, or a husband that's not saved, or parents that aren't saved, or children that aren't saved. 
and there's, there's that spiritual division. The Bible says, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. And strife in the home, disunity in the home can rob us of the blessing of answers to prayer. The Spirit of God is vital in our prayer lives. And whenever the Spirit of God is grieved, real prayer becomes impossible. Let me say that again. Whenever the Spirit of God is grieved, real prayer becomes impossible. Whenever there's division amongst the people of God, that grieves the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God that we need to live the Christian life. It's the Spirit of God we need to bring sinners to Christ. It's the Spirit of God that we need whenever we come together to prayer. Now, we are not called at any place in the Bible to make unity. We are simply called in the Word of God to keep unity because unity is something that Christ has purchased for His people upon the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Or Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Or Philippians 1 and verse 27, only let your conversation, your behavior be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Did you ever look at the disciples that the Lord Jesus Christ chose? Hard to envisage a, a more diverse group of individuals. Luke was a physician. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a zealot. Matthew the tax collector, collecting taxes for the Roman government. Simon was a zealot, almost like a paramilitary, fighting against the Roman government. And yet whenever they heard the call of Jesus Christ to take up the cross and follow him, and he would make them to become fishers of men, it seems that all of their differences socially and politically, they maybe still had the same convictions, but they didn't allow those things to cause division because they realized that here's a Savior and His kingdom is not of this world. And despite all of our personal differences and the different tribes that we come from and the different backgrounds that we come from and the different social standings that we come from and the different occupations that we come from, and the different political ideologies that we have, we might say that one was like, a, like a, a capitalist, maybe one was like a communist or a socialist, we just don't know. But they had different ideologies. But whenever they came together, there was unity. Why? Because they recognized that this thing that Christ has called us to is much bigger than the little empire I was living for before. We can all have our ideas our likes, our dislikes. But sometimes these things just have to be left at the door because there's a greater work to be done. And that's the work of the furtherance of the gospel. By seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's how we keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Sometimes there needs to be repentance. Sometimes there needs to be reconciliation. Sometimes there needs to be restitution. A number of years ago, I heard a pastor, a retired pastor, uh, talking about a time whenever the Spirit of God really moved in his church many years ago. He says it was our custom early in the Lord's Day morning to have a prayer meeting. And just a few of us gathered together in the, in the minister's room for prayer early in the morning. Some were office bearers and some were just members of the church. And we just gave ourselves to prayer and went through the routine of meeting together for prayer. And then one Lord's Day morning, Seven o'clock, this man was praying, and all of a sudden he stopped. And he just began to weep, and he says, Lord, my heart is not right with my brother John. 
and he stopped the prayer meeting and he went over to this other brother. His name was John, obviously, in the prayer meeting. And whatever had happened between them, he apologized. And they forgave each other for the way they'd been speaking. And all of a sudden, everybody in that little prayer meeting, the pastor said, they just began to weep. He says, I went home and I didn't really know how to preach or what to preach after that. I was doing a series, I had a message prepared, but I just went to the, the pulpit that Lord's Day morning and I didn't know what I was going to say until I stood up because our hearts had been so exercised. And he says, I just preached whatever God gave me in the spur of the moment. I never usually do that, he said, but I, I did it that day. And as I was making my way down the aisle, a young woman stood out from her pew and she took me by the coattails and she said, Pastor, lead me to Christ. And he says, that was the beginning of a wonderful time of blessing. I came back at night and there were people meeting together after church to get right with each other and get right with the Lord. Because there had been disunity in some brother's heart. And he was big enough and strong enough to confess it and put it right. I can remember a number of years ago a young woman coming to me and she used to attend her church with her best friend or we thought they were best friends. Never seen apart from each other, sat together in church, went to all of the meetings in the church. And one day this woman came and she said to me, you know, I've got a problem with my, my friend. And she sat down and she talked about it and she called this friend for everything. And I was absolutely honest with her and I said, you know, if, if I'm being honest and just open with you, I think a lot of the problems that you have are just in your head. I think you're paranoid. And she says, well, I'm, I'm going to leave the church over this. And I said to her, well, you know, if you leave the church over it, it's not going to change what's in your heart. You can sit with your friends side by side on a Sunday morning and there's division between the two of you. And you can move across to the other side of the church and sit apart from their same, there's that same division. And you can up sticks and go to another church in this town and there's still that division. And you can go to another church in another town if you like, but there's still going to be that division. And I said, if there's division or there's strife or there's a problem, just man up and go to that person and put it right. But she wouldn't do that. And she left the church that she was attending for a short while. She attended another church. And then she stopped going to church altogether. And her walk with God just went down the chute. I remember seeing her a few times after that. And she could never look me in the eye. All because of some silly strife. That could have so easily been put right. Listen, it was over absolutely nothing. As division often is. And there was a walk with God ruined. Somebody stepping away from the prayer meeting. Stepping away from a Sunday school class that she taught. Stepping away from friends that loved her and Christian people that supported her. And just going out into a spiritual wilderness. Because she wasn't willing to practice unity. And put things right. Unity in principle. Unity in practice. And then just in closing, unity in prayer. The reality of unity in prayer runs like a scarlet thread throughout all Scripture. Right from Genesis where it speaks about men beginning to call upon the name of God, meeting together to pray. Jehoshaphat called the people again to prayer. Hezekiah, after a time of darkness in Israel, opened again the doors of God's house and carried all of the rubbish out, got the book of God <laughs> open again, called the people to sacrifice, and call the people to meet together for prayer. Jeremiah promised the children of Israel as they were facing 70 years of captivity in Babylon that a day would come whenever they would come back to the land of Israel and they would meet together again unitedly for prayer. Jeremiah 50 and verse 4, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, and they shall go and seek the Lord their God. First thing they did whenever they came back from their captivity was meet together, Israel and Judah together, a nation that had once been divided, meeting together with their little ones in the house of God to seek the Lord together in prayer. And this is our Lord's teaching here, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 18, verse number 19, if two of you 
shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask. It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Especially in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we see this wonderful, wonderful illustration again and again and again, right from the very first chapter of unity, unity in prayer. Let me just finish by giving you a few verses to think about. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 13. When they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotus, there is the zealot, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord. There's the unity. One accord in prayer and supplications with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren, the apostles. Mary, the mother of the Lord, a large group of women together with them, and even the Lord's physical earthly brothers. And they're met together in the same place. And they're praying and they're continuing together in prayer. And then you get to chapter 2, verse number 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. There they are again. They're seeking the Lord still about 10 days later. And they've been praying all the while, day after day. And this unity is binding their hearts together and drawing them to the throne of grace. And what are they praying for? They're praying for the outpouring of the Spirit of God that will really thrust forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you look at the great results in Acts chapter 2, 37. When they heard this, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they were pricked in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And now what did those 3,000 converts do now that they've repented and been baptized? They did the same things that the people had been doing in the upper room in the days previous. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There's the importance again, friends of doctrine, and fellowship, and breaking of bread, and in prayers. And I believe that those are four characteristics of a Bible New Testament church. Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and meeting together for prayer. And the principle was laid down. Unity. Meeting together and praying together. You have it again in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Why were the believers, the new converts of one heart and one soul? Because the people who had been praying and serving the Lord were of one heart and of one soul. The whole lesson is that unity in prayer gives power in prayer. So much emphasis in the New Testament is on the public place of prayer. In the book of the Acts of the Apostles, prayer meeting after prayer meeting, after prayer meeting. Different people, different personalities, different characteristics, different ideas regarding all of that goes on in the world, but unity in purpose, unity in heart, unity in prayer. And it's there the Bible says, Psalm 133, where there's unity, there the Lord commands the blessing. Whenever Mr. McShane, Robert Murray McShane, left his parish in Dundee for a season under the care of a friend of his, 
W.C. Burns, a young man with a real burden for the lost. Mr. McShane went to Palestine and was known then for a tour of the Holy Land. And whenever he was away, God sent revival to his church. He had preached there with all of his heart and undoubtedly had seen blessing, but not the revival that he longed for. But whenever he was away, God was pleased to use somebody else, but he wasn't jealous. He was thrilled and stirred. And whenever he came back to his parish in St. Peter's in Dundee, he discovered that in his absence there were now 39 individual prayer meetings in immediate connection with his own church. 39 weekly prayer meetings in connection with his church, five of which were conducted and attended by young children. Isn't that remarkable? Five prayer meetings in a local church that were conducted by and attended by children alone. And then another 34 prayer meetings outside of that attended by adults and young converts and believers. And they were meeting together in prayer. It said in the 59 revival here in Ulster that Wellington, Presby Wellington Street Presbyterian Church in Ballymena had 100 weekly prayer meetings in connection with the local church. C.H. Spurgeon used to bring visitors to his church if they arrived early on the Lord's Day morning down into the basement below the old Metropolitan Tabernacle and open the doors and show visitors this large group of people, hundreds of people meeting together for prayer, many of whom prayed throughout the whole service while Mr. Spurgeon preached in the auditorium above them. And he says, this is the engine room of the church. This is the powerhouse. The people were united in prayer. And that's where God commanded the blessing. May God write his word tonight upon all of our hearts and thank you so much.